0: Acts chapter 2, and I want to begin reading with verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized and added to them, And that day about three thousand souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all, as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This is the word of God. This morning in your your bulletin, you'll see our, our subject is that of a vital church. And I wonder if, if we condensed the, the life and activity of every Christian, what God expects of every Christian and of every church, down to some basic commands that Jesus gave, what would they be? Thinking about what you know of the, the life and the ministry, the teaching of Jesus, if you could boil down everything that Christians and churches are supposed to do, what commands of Jesus summarize that well? I think that the whole of the Christian life comes down to to three commands that Jesus gave in two statements uh, that we call uh, the Great Commandments and the Great Commission. The Great Commandments He gave in Matthew 22, uh, one man came to Jesus. He came to test Him, but he said, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? What is the greatest commandment in the law? And what did Jesus say? He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. But he went on and he said, The second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. The great commission, we know, and hopefully you know, uh, comes from Matthew 28. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and what? make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And then he gives his promise, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So I think... It's reasonable to conclude from these commands that Jesus gave that the Christian life can be summarized in these three commands to love God, love others, and make disciples. To love God, to love others, and make disciples. And I think there's a logical progression there as well. Because the first and greatest commandment is to love God. God is worthy of all the affection you can muster. God is worthy of all your service and obedience, every ounce of honor and glory that you can give. He ought to be the number one and greatest love in your life. You can love other things, you can enjoy other things, but you're to love and enjoy other things as gifts from the one you love the most. He's worthy of our love. But if we have truly experienced the love of God, and if we love God as we ought, the the natural uh, step that comes next is that we love others. You can't live in a loving relationship with God Almighty and it not show somewhere in your life. To say that you love God, but not to love your neighbor or your brother or your sister, I believe the Apostle John said that you're a liar. You can't say that you love God if you don't love your neighbor. It's just going to happen. It's going to be the natural progression of things to love one another. But if you love God and you love your neighbor as you ought, doesn't it make sense that you would try to make a disciple of that neighbor? If you wonder why we don't evangelize, why we don't share the gospel, why we don't try to help others walk with the Lord, I think it comes down to the fact that we don't love God as we ought, and we don't love our neighbors as we ought. Because if we loved God as we ought, we would talk about Him. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. And so if we love God, we're going to want the name of God to be known. We're going to want people to know the nature and the character of God and to have a relationship with Him. So for God's sake, our love for God will want to tell people about Him. But not just for our lo- out of our love for God, but out of our love for neighbor. Because if you have a neighbor that's lost in their sins and you believe the Bible is true when it says that all sinners will go to a lake of fire for eternity and you don't want to try to save your neighbor from that, then I would say you don't really love your neighbor. So if we love God as we ought, we're going to love others. And if we're loving others, we're going to be making disciples. We're going to be telling the good news about Jesus, seeking their salvation, and then once they've been born again, to walk with them and and helping them to walk with the Lord. So those are the the categories, I think, the, the big commands that everything else in the Christian life and everything in the life of the church falls under. And there's a lot of practical ways that these things play themselves out. We say love God, okay, well how do you do that? You say love others, okay, how do you do that? Make disciples, how do you do that? And the church for, for generations has practiced these things that we call disciplines, spiritual disciplines, to obey these commands that God has given. Now, some people, when you start talking about spiritual disciplines and accountability and having methods and processes for how you do things and how you're going to obey God, they get a little nervous because you don't want to fall into the category of the Pharisees. Because they claimed to love God and they they had all these rules and all these processes and ways that they did things, but those things became such a burden to the people that it wasn't about loving God and loving your neighbor anymore. It was about following the rules and checking the boxes. So I understand that some people would get nervous when you start talking about spiritual disciplines, but it wasn't necessarily the practices themselves that that made the Pharisees wrong. It was the the attitude, the heart, their understanding of the practices. I think Don Whitney said it in a a very clear way. He said their faulty understanding, that is the faulty understanding of the Pharisees, their faulty understanding of spirituality was that disciplines equals godliness. But while practicing biblical disciplines is not the definition of godliness, it is a means to it. Because on the one hand, we should realize that reading the Bible, praying, practicing other biblical disciplines will not automatically make us godly. But on the other hand, we should not expect any progress in our godliness, progress in our walk with the Lord, apart from spiritual disciplines. And we can differentiate too between the personal disciplines and the interpersonal disciplines. I'm getting to a point. Hang with me. A lot of times we talk about spiritual disciplines and we think about the personal disciplines. We think about me alone at home reading my Bible. Me alone at home praying. Me trying to share the gospel with somebody. You see what I'm talking about? These are the personal disciplines. But those aren't all that exist. There are the interpersonal disciplines. The things that we do together as a congregation. Disciplines that relate to your life in the church, and that's what I want to talk to you about today. I hope that you know you should be reading your Bible on your own. I hope that you know you should be praying and that you should be sharing the gospel on your own. But I want to talk to you about your life with the church, your life with this congregation. Acts two thirty six, as we come to this passage that we've read, Acts two thirty six is the conclusion of the first Christian sermon in history. When we began reading, we started with the word therefore. That's the conclusion of Peter's sermon. It's the day of Pentecost, back in verse 14. He stands up to preach because uh, the Holy Spirit has come at this time, and he begins to preach Jesus to the people. He says, You've looked for the Messiah all these years, we've looked through him throughout our history. And then God sends his own son. He sends Jesus and proves that he is who he says he is by the miracles that he does. He gives sight to the blind. He makes the deaf to hear. He raises the dead. And even though he did all of these signs and all these things that prove that he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah, he looks at this crowd of Jews and he says, Guess what? You killed him. You've been waiting for the Messiah. God sent the Messiah. You didn't believe him and you killed him. That's Peter's message. That's a good sermon. So then verse thirty-four or verse 36, he comes around towards the end and he says, Let all the house of Israel know, assuredly, that God has made this Jesus, this Jesus who did miracles, this Jesus who died, this Jesus who rose from the dead, both Lord and Christ. The Jesus that you rejected, that you killed, God raised him from the dead and he is your Lord. He is your Christ. So then what do the people say? They hear this and they're cut to the heart. And they say to Peter, what, what do we do? You know, if we've killed the Messiah, what do we do? And Peter's answer is this, verse 38, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we see on this day, this day of Pentecost, the conclusion of this sermon, that 3,000 people are born again. In order to be a Christian, to be born again, you simply have to believe the message that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that He died for your sins and He rose from the dead. You put your faith in that Jesus, you believe that message, and you are a Christian. You're born again. Verse 41, it tells us here, though, that those who gladly received the word were what? Baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. So those who believe were baptized, and those who believed and were baptized were added to the church. So if you want to be a member of this congregation, you have to believe the message of Jesus, that He is Lord and Christ, and you've got to be Baptized. And then you can be a part of a local church. That seems to be the biblical progression. But then we see in this passage from verse 42 on, these first days of the church. And In my Bible, I don't know about yours, uh, there's a heading above verse 40 and it says, A vital church grows. And I think that's a good definition of what this church is. A good way to describe what this church is. A vital church. Church. It's a church that's healthy. It's full of life. It's growing. It is a vital church indeed. And so if we step back and look at this church from our perspective, these verses from verse 42 to 47, I think we can learn some really important lessons about what a healthy, vital, growing church looks like. I'll go as far as to say that the things we see in Acts 2, verse 42 to 47, fit within that framework Of those commands from Jesus to love God, to love others, and to make disciples. To love God, love others, and make disciples. So what does a vital church look like? What do vital churches do? Number one, they love God through gathering for worship. They love God through gathering for worship. Verse 42 says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, the breaking of bread, and in prayers. There's there's a, a lot crammed into that one verse, and we can't spend all day on it. But these are the things they devoted themselves to. They gave themselves to, continued steadfastly in. And the first thing he says is they continued in the apostles' doctrine. And when you think about coming to church, do you think about learning doctrine, the teaching of Scripture? They came to hear what the apostles had to say about the Word of God. Now, the apostles aren't here any longer, so where do we find the apostles' doctrine? That book that's in your lap, in your Bible, in the New Testament. Now, a lot of people have the idea that you come to church and you come to worship, you gather with the congregation to worship, and, you know, doctrine really doesn't matter, teaching isn't all that important, just give me Jesus, I just want to love Jesus. You ever heard people say that? That doctrine is downplayed, teaching is downplayed. We just need love in Jesus, and that's all we've got to have. Let me tell you something, you can't love Jesus right, you can't know the right Jesus if you don't know doctrine. If, if the church is not committed to the teaching of the Word of God, when it gathers for worship, it's not doing what the church is supposed to do. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. I'm not here just to make you feel good. I'm not here just to give you some advice how to live your life. I want you to come here on Sundays and hear from God's Word and be taught about the God who made you and loves you and saved you. If you want to know God, you've got to know His Word. You've got to know doctrine. They gave themselves not just to doctrine, but to fellowship. And this fellowship isn't based on things that they had in common in their life. It's not just people who who look the same, people who talk the same, people who have the, the same preferences and enjoy the same activities. It's not grounded on any of that. We usually have fellowship with people who are like us. But the kind of fellowship that's experienced in the church isn't based on our, our preferences or, or the things we enjoy or even what we look like or sound like. But our fellowship in the church is grounded in our, in our relationship to Jesus Christ. That we all have the same Holy Spirit. The church ought to be a place where people, God's people, can come and fellowship. One pastor made the point that a lot of people get more fellowship and more of what they need at a bar than they do at a church. Because if you had a terrible week and you go to a bar and you're crying in your beer, the guy next to you is probably going to put his arm around you and buy you another round. He's going to let you talk. He's going to let you cry. You're going to tell him how you feel. And you're going to go away and you're say, man, you know, that's a nice place. I'm going to come back there again. But you come to church and you've had a terrible week. What do you do? You don't sit and you cry and you tell everybody about it. You put on your happy face. You act like everything's just fine. Then you get in the car and fuss with your wife the whole way home, right? I'm not talking from experience or anything like that. But you see what I mean. The the kind of fellowship that we ought to have ought to be closer than anything that the world can establish. The kind of fellowship that we experience in the church ought to be one that can only be produced by God. It ought to be the kind of fellowship and and unity that the rest of the world looks in at the church and says, How do they do that there? How do those people get along like that? That's the kind of fellowship that we're to have. They, they broke bread. And when you talk about breaking bread in the Bible, it can just be having a meal. It can refer to the Lord's Supper. I think since it shows up twice in this passage and once it specifically talks about eating food together, I think this time, this first time it comes up, it's talking about the Lord's Supper. Communion. Do you see that as a vital part of what the church does? Just to let you know, we're going to do it more frequently this year. I don't feel like we do it frequently enough. We're going to do it next week. Prepare your heart. When we come together, we, we, we devote ourselves to the teaching of the Word of God. We devote ourselves to the fellowship of one another. We devote ourselves to these commands that Jesus gave that, that, that typify, and in which we see our communion both with God and each other in these elements, in the Lord's Supper. They devoted themselves to it. You ever thought of being devoted to taking the Lord's Supper? And the last thing he says was they were devoted to prayers. Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer. Preaching is important. Singing is important. Giving the offering is important. But Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer. What sets you apart from any other world religion? What sets your God apart from any other God in the world? that your God can hear you. Your God hears you when you pray. Your God not just hears you and doesn't just care, but he can actually act on what you ask and help you. We're to be people who are characterized by these things, by sound doctrine, by fellowship, by breaking of bread, communion, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. Are you devoted to prayer in the life of the church? I'm not saying we do these things perfectly, but we're trying to get better. We're trying to take steps this way. So if a vital church l- loves God through gathering for worship, the, when do we do these things? We do these things on Sunday morning. We do these things in our Sunday worship gatherings. So if the early church, and these first days of the church, they were committed to doing these things, let me ask you, how committed are you to gathering with the church at the appointed time, every week, for worship. This is is not the only way we express our love for God, but if you lack this, it's going to affect all the rest. If you want to love God, if you want to have a loving relationship with God, it has to start with consistency, faithfulness, in gathering with God's people to worship. Now, the, the guys who do the statistics when they're uh, trying to, to gauge things about what the church thinks about this and Christians think about that, did you know that they consider one Sunday a month to be regular church attendance? I just want to fill you in on that. It's not. One Sunday a month is not regular church attendance. And I know that things come up, a thousand things can try to keep you from being here. Family stuff, sports stuff, work stuff, there's all kinds of things that come up. Do you think that that's not on purpose? Do you think that we don't have an enemy who wants to keep us from being able to gather? It takes intentionality. You have to do it on purpose to be here. It won't just happen if you say, well, we'll see what happens when Sunday comes. Something will get in the way. Make up your mind, commit yourself to loving God through gathering with the church for worship. Hebrews 10, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. As Jesus is coming, is drawing near, we don't need to gather less, we need to gather more. Commit yourself to loving God by gathering for worship. Let's move on to number two. They love each other through fellowship and service. I know we've already mentioned fellowship, but look how it happened—not just in the whole congregation, but in some smaller groups in the congregation. Verse forty-three, then verse forty-four. Now, all who believed were together, had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all, as anyone had need. They they showed this this fellowship, this love, this service to one another through meeting each other's needs. Now anybody who wants to give a a, a Christian support for communism, they always fall to this verse right here. Let me just go ahead and point something out. This is not government coercion happening in Acts chapter 2. What's happening in Acts chapter 2 is people who have things because of their love in their heart for their fellow brother, their fellow sister in the church who does not have choosing gladly and willingly to sell something of theirs to meet the need of another. Are we willing to do that for one another in this congregation? Nobody twisting your arm, nobody saying you have to, but do you have such a love for the people in this room that you'd be willing to sell some of your property to help meet their needs? They live life together. Verse 46 says, continuing daily with one accord in the temple. And they weren't content just to meet together on Sunday mornings. They're getting together every single day of the week. They shared meals. They broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. These are people who aren't just getting together to say they went to church on Sunday. These are people who are so committed to each other, who so love each other, that they're not just going to meet with the congregation, the 3,000 on Sunday, and however many more the Lord's added, but they're going to get together with some that are closer to them, some that they know who they can invest in and love and take care of and live life with. Christian relationships are so far from all God wants them to be when they only go as far as the Sunday worship service. We need to invest in one another, get to know one another deeply, share our burdens, meet each other's needs, and saying it simply, live life together. We need these kinds of relationships in the church. You can't do that with every single person in the church. You'll wear yourself out, burn yourself out if you try to do that. But what's one place where we in the church can gather together in smaller groups to provide opportunities to get to know other Christians and serve one another in this way? Well, one way that we're doing it right now is Sunday school. You gather together with a smaller group. We need to be intentional in those relationships to get to know one another. I'm just going to go ahead and let you know and I'm going to invite you to, to take part in this. We're starting some more classes next week. There'll be at least two more starting up next week. So if you're not in a Sunday school class right now, if you're not in any kind of small group Bible study, come here next Sunday and I will put you in a new class where we are going to be intentional about trying to form these relationships where we don't just come and sit and have a a teacher and students, but to have a group of people who love one another, who are reading God's Word together, and will pray for one another and serve the Lord and His church together. That's what we want. We want to love one another through fellowship and through service. I think the best place to do that is through Sunday school or small group Bible studies, discipleship groups. The third thing is they make disciples through prayer and evangelism. This is what a vital church does. They make disciples through prayer and evangelism. Verse 47 says they were praising God, having favor with all the people. First of all, live your life in such a way that people aren't unnecessarily offended by you. If you're going to share the gospel with them, they're going to be offended by the gospel. If you offend them with anything else, you're just a jerk. I understand that politics are important to people, but they are not so important that you should ruin an opportunity to share the gospel with someone because they disagree with you. Go look at Jacob Hall's Facebook page. See how much gets posted there. Very little. I'm only there because my wife says I have to be so she can share pictures. I could give a lot of opinions on the internet for the world to read or the three people who might be interested. But I'm not going to just go blast my opinions out online because I don't want to do anything that's going to hinder me from being able to share the gospel with somebody. I'm not going to put any kind of stumbling stone in front of somebody to keep them from getting to Jesus just because they don't like what I think about something else. They had favor with all the people. The people saw how they treated one another, how they loved one another, how they worshipped their God. And they said, there's something about that I like. There's something appealing about the way that church lives. And those Christians live. But they were seeing people saved. He says, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Oh, that God would do this again. That the Lord would add to his church daily those who were being saved. And this just didn't happen on its own. They didn't just sit around and people started showing up and said, hey, can we be Christians? No, they prayed for people. They preached the gospel. We don't see it in this passage beyond Peter's sermon, but they did. Just flip over a page or two to to chapter 4, verse 29. 4 verse 29. Listen to this prayer. He says, Now, Lord, look on their threats. Obviously, these people are starting to threaten them a little bit. And grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. There's prayer and evangelism. We pray for boldness, we pray for the lost, and we speak boldly the gospel of Jesus. Verse 30, By stretching out your hand to heal, that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Verse 31, And when they had prayed. Now listen, when's the last time you prayed for a lost person? When's the last time you prayed for boldness to share the gospel? When you got done, what happened? Probably got up and went about your day. Listen here, verse 31, When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all All filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. And they had results. Verse 32. The multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. There was a multitude who believed as a result of their praying and their preaching. You may not feel confident to share the gospel. You may not feel like you know what to say. but You need to get there. But let me tell you the place that you need to start is in prayer. Praying for the lost, praying for boldness, praying for opportunities. Listen, Ephesians 6, Paul asked the church to pray that he would have boldness to preach the gospel. Can you imagine that? The Apostle Paul felt like he needed boldness. He's the boldest guy I know. I never met him. He asked the church to pray that he would have boldness. In Colossians 4, he asked the church to pray that he would have open doors to share the gospel. In Romans 10, he said that he was praying for a specific group of people to be saved. He was praying for Israel at that time. Who are you praying for specifically, by name, that God will save their soul? Matthew 9, Jesus told the disciples to pray for more laborers. There's always going to be more lost people than there are people to go and preach the gospel to them. So we pray for more, more laborers, more workers. Now listen, disciple-making doesn't stop once a person has been saved from their sins, but it has to start there. It must start there. And any work of reaching people with the gospel that will be effective must start with prayer. It must start with prayer. I'm trying to provide through, through this congregation more opportunities to pray for the lost in our community. Um, A couple of groups have gone out already and and done some prayer walking. Well, the way our community is laid out, more like prayer driving. Uh, It's a little far to walk to some of these houses. But all they're doing is they'll get in the car, three or four or five together, and they'll they'll go and they'll pull in a driveway. They pray for that home. One person gets out, leaves a hanger on the door that says, we prayed for you. We're from Simmons Grove. And then they move on to the next house. They pray for that whoever lives in that home. They leave a door hanger. They move on to the next house. If we hit, hit a street where they're close enough together, we can walk. I've done a little walking. But wouldn't you take part in something like that? I'm not asking you to bang on the door and say, hey, do you know if you die tonight you go to heaven. I mean, you can do that. But would you at least pray for people to be saved? Would you commit to praying for one person that you know who's lost every single day until they become a Christian? And pray for opportunities to share the gospel with them? The conclusion is this, the main point, the idea is this, a vital church, a vital church is made of individuals who love God, who love others, and who make disciples. Because the organization of the church can't do anything. If anything gets done in the church, it gets done by individuals. A vital church is made up of individuals who love God, love others, and make disciples. So... What about you? What about you? Where are you on on the spectrum of, of, of doing these things, obeying these commandments? Do you love God? Have you committed yourself to gathering faithfully with the church to worship? Consistently? Unless you're providentially hindered. You wake up with a fever, stay home. We don't want you here. If your car breaks down on the way, you know, you can't help things like that. I'm not saying you can't go on a vacation or two. That's fine. I like a vacation. But most of our reasons for missing church on Sunday morning aren't really that important. Would you commit to being here faithfully, consistently, not just this year, but for the rest of your life because you love God and want to worship him with his people? Would you commit to that? What about loving others would you love others through fellowship through service through joining a sunday school class or a small group bible study a discipleship group we've got two classes for adults that are already going have been going for longer than most of us have been alive you can join one of those classes if you want to try something new we're trying something new next sunday be here Would you invest in relationships in those groups? Would you serve the people in those groups? Would you serve the church and the community through those groups? Would you make disciples? Would you join a prayer team and go pray for homes in our community? Here's a goal. I'm just throwing it out there. I would love for this church, people from this church, to go to and pray for 500 homes around our church this year. It's doable. I've done the math. Like two hours a month, we could do it. Would you commit to praying for one lost person that you know and look for an opportunity to share the gospel with them this year? Now listen, I can't make you godly. I can't touch your heart. Um, I, I've got these cards up here, and I'm going to ask you to come get one in a minute. I'm going to ask you to consider where you are right now. If you're not here consistently on Sunday mornings, your next step is to commit to being here consistently on Sunday mornings to worship God just as he's commanded. If maybe you're coming to worship, but that's about the extent of your relationship with the church, your next step is join up with a smaller group of Christians. Commit to being in a Sunday school class or a small group Bible study. Maybe you've been coming to church for years. You've been in a Sunday school class for years. What's your next step? Your next step is to ask yourself this question. Am I sharing the gospel and making disciples? Would you join a prayer team? Would you pray for somebody that you know? Would you look for an opportunity to share the gospel? I can't make you godly. These practices, just by walking up here, checking a box on my little card, and showing up for Sunday school next week isn't going to make you godly. That's a relationship between you and God alone. But I'm going to put these opportunities before you. What's your next step? What is your next step in the life of the church? I'm going to pray. We're going to have two or three minutes, so just quiet. I want you to pray. I Seek the Lord. What is your next step? And at the end of that quiet time, when I pray and I say amen... I don't want you to wait for anybody to start singing. I don't want you to wait for me to say, would you stand? I'm not going to say heads bowed and eyes closed. I'm going to say heads up and eyes open. Okay? And if you're willing to take a step this morning, walk down here, grab one of these cards, grab a pen, fill it out, drop it in your offering plate on the way out the door today. Will you do that? Bow with me. Father, I praise you for the gift of your church. That you've given us a family. Not a family that's determined by our. um, Biology, our. Ethnicity. Our heritage, our ancestry. Not even our likes, our preferences. But you've given us a family. That's united by your Holy Spirit as we've been born again by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We belong to you. We want to love you. We want to love each other. We want to reach others so that they can love you and know you too. So Lord, I pray over the next two or three minutes as we have a time of quiet and prayer That your spirit would work in the hearts of these people. That they would be obedient to what you've commanded. I pray in Jesus' name.